We live in a golden age of astronomy. Every year, there are new discoveries that pivot and warp our understanding of the universe. From exoplanets to black holes, from distant galaxies to exploding stars, astronomers are uncovering deep truths about the very nature of reality. A reality that is immense and full of wonder. And yet here on Earth, the weight of our species' problems only seems to grow. On the surface, there is a disconnect between the stars above and the struggles of our society down here. But astronomy's place within our world is not so cut and dried. The influence of this discipline on humanity has been felt through the centuries. But what role does astronomy play today? Over the course of this one-off podcast episode, we hope to answer that question by talking to real astronomers working in the Netherlands. The Netherlands has been a thriving source of discovery and innovation in astronomy, and the astronomers we spoke to carry decades of experience with them. And through their stories, we will find out how studying the cosmos has shaped the world, and how it can shape our perspective. My name is Callum Griffiths, and this is Cosmic Perspectives, with stories of Dutch astronomy in wider society. Most stories in astronomy start in intangible spaces, great distances from the Earth. But the story of those who study it invariably starts with a child and a dream. My name is George Miley. Uh, I was born and brought up in Ireland. Um, I've always wanted to be an astronomer uh, since the age of seven. Uh, when my father uh, read H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds to me, and I, I got hooked. And um, I also, one of the reasons, of course, there's the, the it's fantastic uh, profession to be involved with the universe and all in all its beauty. Right. And, and so it seems to be the case uh, as with many people, that your fascination with the night sky started early. But how did that transition from a fascination into a career? I did a, a, a BSc in physics in University College Dublin. And then I went to Jodrell Bank in England, uh, where I uh, did my PhD uh, in uh, uh, building long baseline interferometry that's linking telescopes together. Uh, it was the infancy of long baseline interferometry. And of course, now it's uh, evolved into a technique of astronomy that links, uh, that links the different countries in the world together because you need telescopes all over the world to get the, the clarity and resolution to uh, uh, make pictures of distant galaxies and uh, planets around other stars. And so where does the story of you, astronomy, and this global perspective start then? I was brought up in the Ireland of the 50s, which was where nationalism was, was prevalent uh, and uh, particularly religion, the Catholic Church was very dominant 
and uh, I I felt that astronomy was one way where I could break out. I was very very much against the this uh, intolerant society, and uh, astronomy was a, the contrasting uh, discipline, and so. Uh, I I decided to become an astronomer, but it wasn't until much later that I actually consciously tried to use astronomy uh, to uh, uh, bridge uh, bridge countries. I mentioned that at Jodrell Bank I was involved in developing radio interferometry. For those who don't know. Jodrell Bank is an enormous radio telescope based near Manchester in the UK. It looks like a huge satellite dish with a diameter of 77 metres. It peers into the sky gathering up radio waves from objects out in space. Objects like very distant galaxies, stars and their planets. This is light with wavelengths much longer than the visible spectrum of colours that we are used to, and even longer than infrared. At Jodrell Bank, George helped pioneer a now widely used technique in astronomy, one he's already alluded to, long baseline interferometry, which involves taking multiple telescopes in different locations on the Earth and combining the data they collect together, creating an image with much better resolution than if only one were used. In the early days of this technique, the distances between telescopes was limited to only a few hundred kilometers. But the next step was to uh, go to thousands of kilometers and instead of radio links to build tape recording interferometers where you would record the data at the different sites on tape and bring them together later. Uh, and a Jodrell Bank, uh, Sir Bernard Lovell, who was the director there, was uh, uh, vis visited the Soviet Union several times to talk with the Soviet astrophysicists, a lot of very brilliant people, uh, about linking linking uh, the Soviet Union uh, together to the big dish at Jodrell Bank in the United Kingdom. Uh, he missed out on that because they were slower Jodrell Bank in developing uh, uh, tape recording interferometry than uh, the Americans. But my first postdoc position when I left uh, Jodrell, when I got my PhD, was at the US National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia. And there, people like Kellerman Kel and uh, Barry Clark were developing tape recording interferometry, and they won out over Jodrell. And they also continued Lovell's discussions, uh, but ha having a, a interferometer between the US and the USSR. And um, I, I, one of the things you have to do with the tape recording interferometers is keep excellent time. And you need a, a, a rubidium clock, an atomic clock. And I remember coming down on the shuttle from the radio telescope at Greenbank to Charlottesville, uh, bringing down a, a rubidium clock. And the, the shuttle driver was really very worried that this atomic clock was going to be shipped 
to the Soviet Union. Uh, and he, he didn't understand. He was abetting this really breach of security. Uh, uh, and so uh, this is a, a, another example. People like Ken Kellerman and Barry Clark uh, talk to their Soviet colleagues. It, it, it's completely different to politicians. And the hope is that by keeping contacts among uh, colleagues at this level, you can influence the political situation to make it more uh, um, uh, less nationalist and more internationalist. Yeah. And have you found that that's been successful? You know, what kind of impacts have you seen from that type of work? Like, how does it make a difference uh, when it comes to political tensions and political relationships? How does it filter out? And have you seen success with uh, this type of work? The astronomers, the academies, are all have all influence. And you hope that by uh, their interactions with the, uh, with the political establishment of countries, that it does push things in the right direction. And uh, my crazy uh, dream is that we set up with the United Nations a program in which uh, we would bring uh, world leaders uh, overnight to one of uh, an inspirational observatory with their children their, and their families and their grandchildren, get them together and let them look at the sky and, and meditate. Uh, this is, again, something may not, it may not help, but it cannot hurt. Professor Miley dreams big. The prospect of the world's leaders gathering together for an evening under the stars seems like wishful thinking, though astronomers have arguably pulled off more difficult projects over the years. But as big as George's dreams are, it's clear that he values the small within his grand ideas, the value of individual relationships, and the influence that that can have on organizations, and the influence that organizations can have on wider society, and so on. It's about building bridges making connections where there were none. One person who knows very well the struggles of making connections across the planet, and indeed the cosmos, is Professor Heino Falke. Hi, yeah, I'm Heino Falke. I'm Professor of Radio Astronomy and Astroparticle Physics at the Radboud University in Nijmegen. And you know, one of the main things I'm working on is imaging black holes. Making the first image of a black hole is something that many people probably have heard about with the Event Horizon Telescope, and that's something you know, that, you know, still keeps me a lot of, you know, keeps me very busy. Absolutely. Yeah. The Event Horizon Telescope, many people will have heard of it, or if they've not heard of it, they will have probably almost certainly seen the final product of the years of work that was conducted through that project. Um, that being, of course, an image, a beautiful image, um, the first image ever taken of a black hole. It was an image that held the front page of, of, I think, pretty much every major newspaper around the world when it was released in 2019. But that image, it's more than just a, a scientific marvel. Could you tell us a little bit of the story of how that image was captured? It was about 25 years ago when I was you know, doing theoretical work on black holes. I realized that certain light 
radio emission would come from near the event horizon. And I was working at a teles at an institute which was working on radio astronomy instrumentation and, and, and was developing worldwide telescopes and using them. It was clear if you would, you know, at least in my mind, if you'd go to higher and higher frequencies, you'd be able to actually see a black hole. You would see the darkness of a black hole. You would see sort of the event horizon absorbing light. You know, that's what, an, what a black hole does. It absorbs light. And, and what you should be seeing is sort of a dark uh, shadow or dark spot surrounded by a ring of light. That's a clear prediction, one of the clearest prediction of, of how black holes should look like and what they should be doing. And, uh, and in, in order to do this, you need a telescope combining a telescope the size of the world, the world. Um, and you can do this by combining telescopes, little telescopes, well, little. I mean, 10, 15 meters, sometimes 30, 50 meters <laughs> size telescopes, but, you know, small compared to the size of the world and, and, and combine them into one global uh, network of telescopes. Every continent, every country adds its own perspective. And by combining those different perspectives, you can actually get a sharp image, the sharpest image possible in astronomy. This is the long baseline interferometry technique that we talked about earlier, the one that Professor George helped pioneer and see something that is gigantic, but very small, very far away. So still, still very small. You know, you need to be able to see a mustard seed in New York from, from Nijmegen in the Netherlands. Um, and in order to do this, you just need a gigantic telescope. You know, even though black holes are gigantic, but they are also very far away. So, you know, you need to have a, a super, super telescope. And, you know, to achieve that, um, you need to convince people. You need to work together across borders, across institutions, across continents, and you know, bring about a global collaboration of scientists, you know, giving their time, their energy, but also their telescopes, and together look at this black hole and, and make that image. And we succeeded. In 2017, we made this experiment, and 2019, we presented the first ever image of a black hole, and it looked exactly as we had predicted it. What did that, what did that moment feel like when you first saw it? After all those years of kind of th thinking about this object, ex having this expectation of what it would look like, the first time that you actually got a glimpse of, of what it looked like, what, what did that feel like? still gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Uh, I mean, the image itself, I mean, it's, it looks, some people say it looked like, like a donut. Or, but, you know, if you know the background, right? I mean, we can, you know, it, it's, it, it's sort of real in a sense. You know, for the first time, you, there's a telescope looking at, at the edge of space and time, at the edge of what we can know, because, you know, black holes are a fundamental limit to our knowledge everything that goes into a black hole never comes out and that's something that actually bothered einstein he, he said black holes can't really exist and now we see this thing we look into this darkness and we know that's the point where everything disappears and nothing come comes out again we can look until here and no further it, it, it really is a fundamental point in our understanding of physics the most extreme area you can look at and 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 it's no longer fantasy, it's, it's, it's real. That realization is, is, is amazing. 
Were you surprised by how that image just seemed to capture the attention of the entire planet? We knew this was a fundamental result. It would, would create some attention, but the, the massive amount of attention that we got and, and the emotional reaction really overwhelmed me and, and, and exceeded all our expectations. In the end, four and a half billion people were exposed to this image. And it was all over the world. It was everywhere. And uh, it's it was sort of a a, a moment of of <laughs> of yeah a, a, a the the world sharing this this discovery with each other and and, and celebrating it, um, and and that was that really made it very special. It was not just one person's or one country's discovery. It was sort of our result. And I think that that was felt and also was felt that this is very fundamental. It's very special. It's very, very exotic. Um, people were joking about it, of course. They were, you know, they were talking about it. I mean, it, you know, it, it became a very human um, thing afterwards. It's like everybody was talking about it for, of course, two years later, half the people have forgotten again. But <laughs> at the time, it was a, yeah, a little bit like the moon landing. Yeah. No, so it did really have that effect of sort of briefly uniting the planet under 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 this image, under this this sort of this idea of this of this object that's just kind of way beyond our almost beyond beyond our comprehension a little bit. But there it was, you know, seeing is believing. It really it was just there. Um, but of course, the the sort of build up to the release of that image, the build up to it, just the the capturing of that image, also involved uniting a lot of people. It involved the collaboration, as you mentioned, of of, of, of groups on different continents of people all over the world. Could you talk a little bit about why collaboration is so important with the EHD and, and also a little bit about how you go about that, how you, how you, you sort of cross borders, cross cultures, cross languages with this type of project? In the end, that probably was the biggest challenge. It was not just a technologically or scientific challenge. It was a sociological challenge, a political challenge as well. Um, their astronomers are used to work in small groups. Uh, they would do their thing, they'd have their telescopes. Um, but here, it was clear we needed eight telescopes to work together, and it was a very high-profile result that uh, could be achieved. So a lot of things were at stake. Um, and, and, and also very different cultures, very different. Each telescope always say, you know, also telescope is only human. I mean, they, it's run by humans. They have the different way of doing things, and and just you know, combining them in, into a network on its own is already a, a challenge. But then having you know, hundred, two hundred scientists work together from these different regions is another one, and agreeing on how to do things. Um, but it's absolutely vital. We needed the world. There was no question. And there's only one world. So we couldn't, you know, it's not that, you know, we use this world, use the other world, right? So you, sometimes you have competing experiments. It was clear you had to work together. And then the question who leads, who, you know, who follows, uh, how do we do things? Um, all this was, was not settled. You have to build it up. And of course, it first starts with inspiration. You need to have an, a, a common vision, a common idea, and it's something you know I tried to work on the last you know twenty five years to just you know make people believe it's possible. The first step is you have to make people believe it's possible, and 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 realize this this is a 
you know, fundamental thing that we can achieve together. And then you have to prove that it's possible with, with, with experiments and, you know, preparatory work, you have technical work, and then, you know, you need many, many different people and different leadership types. Types. It's not just one person leading it. There are, you know, different groups which uh, um, work towards the final goal, and then you have to bring it together. Uh, independent groups, like independent nations. And, and, and we had workshops where we would sit together and had science talks. And then we ha we'd go back in the, in the, you know, it felt like United Nations. <laughs> so we had the secret meetings in some rooms. And then you had sort of the, um, you know, the leaders of this group negotiating, you know, who is part of it, who is not, what are the rules, what are the rules of engagement, um, who gets which position, who, who chips in how much money, And, and this was all, you know, not a straightforward process in, in the end. Um, also extremely stressful to me because it was never clear where it would, where it would go in the end. It is often true with scientific projects of any size that the success and impact of the work is hard to predict. Scientists pursue their hypotheses in pursuit of a greater truth. Sometimes they find what they are looking for. Sometimes they are forced to turn their eyes and marker pens back towards the whiteboard. And sometimes they find something wholly unexpected. Often, a big factor in the success and failure of these projects is the technology. Despite meticulous planning and attention to detail, the fate of many discoveries can hang on a computer switching on at the right time, or even just a bolt on the side of a rocket staying secure. There is no better example of such a balancing of fates than Christmas Day 2021. Decollage liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself, James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. The James Webb Space Telescope is a modern wonder of human creation, a machine built to peer back into the deepest reaches of space and time. It was the product of collaboration between scientists, engineers and administrators from all over the world, with the most significant contribution from here in the Netherlands, and at the heart of that Dutch team was our next guest. Yeah, my name is uh, Edine van Ishoek. Uh, I'm a professor of molecular astrophysics uh, at the University of Leiden in the, the Netherlands. Um, I started out as a chemist um, and then uh, became an astronomer. So I studied the uh, chemistry between the stars and especially how new stars like our sun and planets like Earth have been formed. And uh, questions uh, such as, you know, where does the water uh, on Earth actually come from? Um, I've also been president of the International Astronomical Union for three years between 2018 and 2021. WEB is a flagship mission and uh, such, of course, from the NASA, it gets a lot of attention, but it has its own very interesting story. Uh, the long time scales, um, you know, close to 30 years, but also the technology, so much new technology had to be developed. Um, it's iconic and already iconic golden eye sort of that, uh, that you see there. But then this whole story about not just the launch where everybody was nervous, but then the fact that it had to unfold this gigantic sun shield, uh, such thin foil uh, that had to work, never been done 
before. It had to unfold the telescope itself. Um, now it's in the process of aligning all of these 18 panels of the, the golden eye to make that work. As you're listening to this, JWST may have already produced its first images. We recorded this conversation with Avina while she and other scientists from around the world were still waiting nervously for the mirrors of the telescope to align into focus. It's not just the excitement of the launch, but uh, I've noticed this, the general public just stays interested in this continuing story of, 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 of making web um, into a functioning telescope. Uh, and then hopefully uh, sometime uh, this summer when we get the first results, seeing also the actual data that we get uh, from that uh, telescope. But but I think it's a combination of uh, uh, partly the, the technological, the human story, uh, all these people, thousands of people that have worked so long on web in, in making this, uh, this happen. Uh, and then together with the, the frontline science, uh, the big questions, of course, that uh, web is addressing. I think that combination makes for something that, that captures the uh, public's imagination. I know that you had a lot of involvement in MIRI, the instrument aboard web that looks at the universe in the um, mid-infrared wavelengths. And obviously responsibility for different parts of JWST were distributed uh, all around the world, but eventually all came together on top of a rocket um, in South America to launch up into space and into its uh, position at L2. How is it decided who builds what and how did Europe and, and the Netherlands in particular come to play such a big role in the development of MIRI? Well, there always needs to be one agency responsible uh, in the end overall. Uh, in this case, NASA. So NASA has the overall responsibility. Then it has sort of an agreement with ESA. Now, ESA is then responsible for the, the deliverables that come from Europe. So in the end, even though uh, the mid-infrared instrument was built by a consortium of European institutes, um, it was not built by ESA. Still, ESA had the responsibility. So they, we had to report basically to ESA on what we were doing. But then within the consortium, uh, how any consortium works, uh, both for space instruments, but also for uh, instruments on ground-based telescopes, like the, the very large telescope or the extremely large telescope of ESO, is that the, you bring the expertise of the different uh, institutes together. And then, you know, quite, quite, quickly you realize what everybody's strength is. Uh, a part of that is historical, that you have proven uh, to be good at doing something. You have the in-house engineers that can do something. Uh, in our case, in the Netherlands, we had built um, other infrared spectrometers, both for space and on the ground. So, you know, we had a track record, a proven track record in building infrared spectrometers. So it was logical that, you know, MIRI has a, a camera, it has a spectrometer, it has four optics, uh, it has detectors. It was quite naturally that, you know, everybody was looking to the Netherlands to say, okay, you know, the spectrometer part, that's naturally on your uh, <laughs> on your end. Um, and then, of course, an instrument needs to have a principal investigator, somebody who is, takes the lead. In this case, it was taken up by Julian Wright in the in the UK. And then, of course, the UK has the responsibility also for the overall project management, the overall system engineering. So once you take up a leadership role, that also comes with your responsibilities uh, of doing that. Uh, and, and uh, you know, 
managing basically the consortium. And, and managing is more than just checking whether everything is, is going right. It is also when one of the partners is in, 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 you know, has problems in helping that partner. So you come together as a consortium to then say, okay, how can we help you uh, get over this hurdle? Um, so, so that is the important sort of internal dynamics of how a consortium uh, works, because it's in everybody's interest that we build that instrument and that we deliver it. We deliver it to ESA, ESA delivers it to NASA. Do you think the Dutch public are aware of the contributions that, that their scientists have made to this globally significant project? Well, I, I, I hope uh, since the launch, we've had a lot of interest from the press. So certainly on both TV and on radio and in newspapers, we have tried to stress this message, but it's something that you need to continue uh, to, to, to give that message. Um, we have wonderful opportunities in, in outreach talks, uh, planetarium shows. Um, we are now regularly also having planetarium shows on web and that's, is uh, all these are, are, you know, important to to tell the story of Web, but also tell sort of the Dutch story of uh, of Web, uh, the involvement of the Netherlands in there, and that yes, even as a small country, uh, we're playing a major role in this uh, multi-billion-dollar uh, uh, um, uh, flagship mission. There's been a lot of discussion and communication about Web in. Uh, public forums, at least right now in the wake of the launch, there are scientists appearing on TV, on YouTube and social media videos and newspapers and magazines holding events and doing talks. Why is it important that scientists take on this responsibility? Well, first of all, the uh, the general public is interested in it. So um, it's not that we are saying, you know, here is our, we have a talk to give. No, it's the opposite. They come to us. I mean, my mailbox on a daily basis, I get new requests. Do you want to give a talk for us? Do you want to, uh, you know, all kinds of different venues, different parts of society. Uh, you know, there's a lot of interest uh, from young and old in, in astronomy. So, so that's one thing. Uh, and the other thing is, of course, uh, like we talked about before, that this is our, um, you know, also our obligation to society. You know, you, the taxpayer, um, are paying my salary. So, so basically, it's it's also our, our you know giving back to society. I mean, society is is paying for um, you know our telescopes, is paying for our salaries. So, it's natural that uh, you know we give something back to them um, and and tell them what we are basically doing, and then and and then try to sort of inspire them. Uh, and I think that's the important word here: provide inspiration, provide perspective. Uh, on what uh, we are doing, uh, uh, you know, what our place is in the cosmos. And and, and you in particular are, are like a very high profile uh, person within the astronomy community. I, I, would, I would say you are or certainly a role model for a lot of uh, astronomers. Um, do, you feel, do you feel that responsibility as, um, as a, as a sort of as a, as a role model within the within that community to kind of lead by example and to to do science communication to encourage um, younger astronomers to do the same. 
Yeah, I think it's important to always lead by example. That's uh, not just to say, yes, we should do science communication, but then to say, oh, but others have to do that. No, you have to do that yourself. If you you want to be a leader, then uh, you also have to do uh, some of this yourself. Now, unfortunately, there are only 24 hours in the day. So so, uh, (laughs) this does mean that you can do everything there. Um, I also need to have time to work with my team and with my my group. So uh, it's it's always a balance between the various responsibilities that you have as a scientist. Um, but it's it's definitely um, something that is, uh, for me at least, a very important part of, of, of being an astronomer and being a scientist. So what is your hope for the future? What impact or what legacy are you hoping to have with the type of work that you're doing? Well, I, I think the most important thing is that society realizes that um, it needs perspectives, it needs long-term perspectives. So too much these days is focused on the short-term and the short-term gains and the short-term results. Um, That's not how uh, society works, that's not how science works. And we have seen that, of course, with COVID and the vaccines that was not just developed from one day to the next. That was only possible because there was 30 years of, um, you know, research before that. And that's with so many things in society. Um, You know, take your smartphone. um, None of that would have been possible without major research and development being done in fundamental research. Um, both astronomy, physics, chemistry, all of them come together and, and, and make sort of our society a better place. Uh, so what I really hope is that society um, and, and especially governments move away from these short-term perspectives and, and think more about the bigger picture, uh, the bigger picture of our place in the universe um, and also uh, the longer-term developments that happen. It's interesting, actually, that those types of technologies that you refer to, um, they often develop incidentally. They emerge from blue-sky thinking where scientists are tackling the fundamental or the abstract and then happen upon something that could change our understanding of nature or, or completely change our lives, in fact. Do Do you feel that there is now a move in science towards making the results of scientific research more immediately applicable, more immediately impactful? Well, I I think it's both. So, I mean, obviously people are starting from the question, I mean, climate change is one of the most, probably a very important one that uh, we, we need to you know, bring down our CO2, think of uh, technologies for carbon capture. I mean, that's something that uh, you start developing uh, methods, techniques, uh, R&D with that specific goal in mind. And, you know, some of them uh, are successful, others maybe not, and that's okay. Uh, you know, you, you never know beforehand what the outcome uh, is going to be, but that's an example of, of where people are clearly uh, now working towards a specific uh, goal. Uh, but most of the, the major developments have always come from more like accidental. <laughs> that's... Uh, 
and uh, you cannot predict it. Uh, so um, just let it happen. Just make sure that the, the boundary conditions are there for it to happen. And that means an open and free society um, where people can exchange ideas, where people are open with their results, uh, with their data. Uh, I think that's that's the most important uh, aspect. And I suppose that even applies to to web. Of course, it it's studying objects that are as far removed as possible from our everyday experience. But do you feel the discoveries that it makes can still have a notable impact on society? Well, I mean, certainly, again, the scientific results, uh, you know, make people think about their place in the universe and especially not just, you know, seeing the first stars and the first galaxies, but uh, I think much closer by other worlds and the fact that JWST will be able to probe the atmospheres of planets around other stars and see whether or not there is life in them. I mean, of course, I don't think that Webb will give yet that, um, you know, conclusive um, uh, result of you know life elsewhere in the uh, in other planets uh, you probably need yet a next generation of uh, instrumentation for that uh, but certainly i mean that's that's of course uh, for society if we are not the only ones anymore it would be as big as the, the copernican uh, revolution um, but even also in terms of technology, I mean, Web is already having um, spin-offs from that. Uh, the technology for, um, you know, aligning the telescope is already being used in eye operations, um, you know, to make that much faster in order to to to, to sort of focus the, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the light and the lasers there. Um, so, so. You know, you see already that also that technology is having spin-offs already. It just seems like it, it's always, it's, uh, particularly with astronomy, that, that doing science and doing this type of science is 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 just a productive endeavor and beneficial endeavor through every stage. Because I think a lot of people might point towards uh, the, the the vast amounts of money that was spent on on web and say like, but it's you know it's it is just looking out. It, you know, it's how how is this going to benefit us? But it's the process of doing it. It's it, as you say, like it's the it's the process of 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 putting it together, pushing technologies to the boundary, uh, and the collaboration that's required between nations that that's that's so important. And then on top of that, the perspective. Well, I, 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 exactly. Yeah, people people forget that you know when you say okay, um, web is a, an expensive ten billion dollar uh, instruments, but. The bulk of that money is basically spent in industry on usually quite young technicians, uh, managers, projects, uh, engineers, etc. Young people in industry having good jobs to to make uh, you know to make web work and uh, to build it. Um, so I think, uh, and that's of course a, a wonderful way of bringing expertise together, of of, of raising the level of expertise uh, within companies, within institutes, um, to a new level, and then basically go beyond where people have gone before. Um, so that is a, a benefit to society as a whole. Professor von Dissuk talked about the diversity of input and the myriad skill sets required to overcome scientific challenges, such as the ones JWST faces. Hugely important among those skill sets is production, designing, testing, and manufacturing the most state-of-the-art technologies. 
It's a skill set cultivated with great success at the Dutch Institute for Radio Astronomy, or as they're better known, Astron. My name is David Prinslow. Uh, currently, I'm the head of the Smart Frontend Group uh, at the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy. Astron is the go-to organization for radio astronomers in the Netherlands. They have a reputation for developing innovative, cutting-edge technologies to make some of the most difficult observations in science, facilitating some of the biggest discoveries in astronomy. David is a key member of that team. Originally, I am from South Africa, uh, where I did my PhD in electrical engineering, and specifically in the framework of the Square Kilometre Array Telescope. Uh, where I developed antenna elements uh, for the next generation radio telescopes. Uh, and that, of course, through my research, put me in contact with Astron. Uh, and from there, started as antenna design engineer at Astron six years ago, and recently now uh, head of the group um, of 14 engineers developing front ends for the next generation radio telescopes again. Now, one of Astron's claims to fame is that the origins of Wi-Fi, a technology that everyone is familiar with, if not completely dependent on, lies at least in part at Astron. Could you tell us a, a little of the story of Astron's involvement there? Probably, yeah, one of the most known um, scenarios where really something that was blue sky research in radio astronomy actually resulted in something that every person, well, billions of devices now on Earth actually use commercially. Uh, so, um, but indeed, it started with uh, Dr. John O'Sullivan uh, from East Australian, uh, and he, in early in his career, worked at the Vesterbork uh, Radio Observatory. Um, so this was one of Astron's uh, telescopes, the Vesterbork Synthesis Radio Telescope. Um, and during his observations there, they ran into a problem with the signal processing, um, the techniques that they used, uh, and. There's a technique that is called uh, Fourier transformation, just transforming the signals from time domain into frequency domain. And the manner in which this took place was a bit time consuming. Uh, and he worked on digital signal, hard signal processing hardware with which to create faster Fourier transformations. Uh, and it's ultimately resulted when he returned back to Australia um, that he saw the link between this and actually the challenge of wireless networks um, where they ran into a um, yeah actually a challenge in increasing the data rates that's possible uh, and he noticed that his solution that he applied for his astronomical observations could potentially solve this problem as well um, so he worked on hardware implementation of this faster faster Fourier transformations um, and that resulted in this protocol that we now use uh, everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's a, that is one of the the best, uh, probably uh, the most known um, applications of how this blue sky research actually helped uh, society or went out of radio astronomy. Um, but that's my understanding of it. Uh, this is, of course, a great example, and we continuously look for that. Uh, it's always in the back of your mind, almost thinking, okay, where can we next apply this? Uh, because you never know. Okay, so it is, in, it is in the back of your mind. because That's interesting because I wonder if uh, John O'Sullivan had that in, in his head when, when he was, because he didn't necessarily have it in his head when he was developing that technology. It was a kind of serendipitous consequence of just doing that work. You know, like it, it, and 
and maybe this is an argument that often comes up in 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 science or a reason for doing basic science research is that the more we know like the it will just inevitably lead to a bet like a benefit somewhere down the line but like talking about the structure that you have at astron talking just just now about your mindset it seems that it's in your head it's in and it's in the it's in the organization a little bit like how can we apply it how can we like how can we find a way to turn this to a, a, a into a into some into something that's a public benefit by kind of pushing those technology boundaries would you say that's a fair characterization yeah it is certainly something we also we also keep in mind and we also strive for it's of course not our main vision uh, if i can put it uh, i hope that doesn't come across as too bluntly um but, uh, of course when we do set up the work we do try to see okay uh, who can benefit from this and we also do this in collaboration with our partners. So our partners are not always, always uh, pure research institutes. Uh, as I mentioned, they're very, there are times they are also commercial companies uh, that also have a commercial channel challenge that they're working on. And we say, okay, but how can we meet one another halfway here? We're very much focusing on the science case here, but potentially we can align our effort here so that also commercially and society then in a, in a commercial sense can also benefit from a technology that we're developing here. So I guess essentially what we're talking about here is known as technology transfer. Could you define what that term means to you? Yeah, so in, in that sense, uh, with the technology transfer that we that we discuss here, on the one hand, you've got something that is, uh, that's really transformational in a sense, like the Wi-Fi example. Um, we don't necessarily strive for such uh, transformational knowledge transfer always because this is really, in a sense, I also view this as serendipitous. Uh, it is the right person working on the right concept at just the right time when there's this extreme need in the market for it and then something as remarkable as that happens. Uh, so what we're looking at the moment for the type of technology transfer is more on sometimes system level. So we're developing, for example, an antenna array system that's operating in a certain frequency range. And then we see, okay, but how could this potentially benefit a current uh, scenario uh, within the public sector as well? Um, or private sector, if it has to, to see, or let's call it commercial. Uh, how could this be benefit uh, the technology we work on? How could this benefit another sector? Uh, and we go looking for opportunities like that as well. Do you think there's something about astronomy that makes it such fertile ground for new technologies to emerge? The challenges set by the astronomers are... They're extremely challenging, <laughs> if I can place it like that. Uh, in order to meet these science demands, uh, you are really pushing the boundary of technology. Um, and my view of that is in a commercial application, you often play a bit more safe. Uh, you, your requirements are not necessarily as stringent uh, or as demanding uh, as set by astronomers. Uh, so in that sense, I view that certain components are really challenged to the max in radio astronomy. Uh, so we are this, what we do here is in a sense, a, a perfect lab to, to assess where, the, where does this boundary actually lie. Uh, and once we've demonstrated that, of course, not commercialized, um, then it's a, this is useful input to industry to see, ah, okay, but look, you can actually get to that point. It's feasible. Uh, and from that point on, industry says, okay, we'll take this part uh, and continue with the development and commercialize. Uh, so 
And that's something I think it is really complementary. Um, or well, that's how I view the interaction in between this. I think that's really kind of beautiful, actually. The this idea that the the universe is like the most extreme testing ground or something like that. You know that the you 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 in order to understand it or gain any insights into it, you're you're forced to to push the your sort of knowledge and the technology to the absolute extreme. And only through doing that can you kind of learn skills and learn uh, techniques and, and 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 uncover things that can then be applied in a sort of softer fashion. Yeah, that's my my view of this as well, and that's uh, and that I see as well in um, when defining projects for students on radio astronomy related instrumentation. Uh, then you notice that you'd really do challenge them within their domain that they're developing. Um, and not all of them then go into radio astronomy, but they, they truly understand what, what the challenges they were facing in order to meet this radio astronomy related question. Uh, and from there, then they've got an entire design space actually to go and apply in other applications. The work that David and Ashton are involved with is a very clear bridging point between the often abstract world of astronomy and our everyday lives through the technology that we interact with in often a passive but sometimes very direct way. At the end of our interview, David was very keen to talk about the role that Ashton plays in education. I feel if there's something worth mentioning, it is uh, that the part that Ashton plays in this and also bringing the knowledge of radio astronomy and the engineering in that's required to develop radio telescopes to other communities and other countries as well. Uh, we're quite active in that. Um, so, and that's also one of the, the benefits I see from this LOFAR telescope that uh, Astron's designed and currently rolling out as well. This LOFAR is the very same instrument that our previous guest, George Miley, helped to create. The LOFAR architecture is this brilliant concept where a country can purchase one of these low-fast stations, um, and this could be a country that would like to develop expertise within radio astronomy or just to boost their science community and engineering community a bit. Um, then low-fast is a facility that they can acquire, and immediately they're part of this world-class international telescope. Uh, and also they've got this well, stationed to themselves as well, to a certain extent, uh, which depending on proposal times, uh, they could also use for their own experiments. Uh, and together with that, then uh, Astron makes available yeah, education in terms of how to process the data, how exactly has the system been designed, uh, what is uh, what digital signal processing techniques are being implemented in this. Uh, so we have uh, we make available these data schools that these people can attend at Astron just to make sure that the young engineers and scientists can actually understand what has been done uh, and use these systems. Uh, so in that sense, that's uh, that's something um, that I I think. Aside from just the science and the technology that we're doing, the fact that we're also trying to transfer the knowledge not only to industry, but also to communities. David's efforts to bring knowledge to communities that may struggle for access is becoming a relevant issue in astronomy. Astronomy is a big science in many ways. The subjects of its study are, well, the universe itself. The instruments we use to observe them are often cathedral-sized telescopes atop mountains, and the scope of the international collaborations that make it all possible are also huge. 
It's easy to forget that much of this science couldn't happen without the work and cooperation of small, local communities at the sites of these huge instruments. Even today, discussion and debate is still going on in Hawaii over the presence of telescopes on what are deemed to be sacred mountains by indigenous people. In the past, concerns from locals have been largely ignored, and involvement kept to a minimum. But change is happening. It started from, from actually the school level. You know, because you have to make kids uh, exciting, excited about science as well. And here we're back with Heino Falke. Uh, we have a project um, that we developed in the Netherlands about a mobile planetarium that goes to schools, uh, actually all the schools in the Netherlands. And we, we tested that in, in Namibia together with, with actually a, a local foundation that already was going to all the schools in Namibia. Because, you know, we don't know anything about what local schools need. So you need local experts. Again, you, you, you know, you don't impose something. You work together with a local existing NGO, which already knows what they're doing. And you say, look, we do this in the Netherlands. What are you doing? And so now we bring this together and this planetarium will go actually to all the schools in Namibia and, 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 and you know, open the, the sky for them um, and, and see the stars, see the earth. And, and sometimes they're just, you know, uh, you know, un unsuspected side effects. I mean, the, you know, this planetarium shows with, uh, you know, you, you're leaving Earth, right? And so you're going from from a place on Earth, you're from Namibia all the way out into sky. And you look back at Earth, and then the little kids see that, and and then one of them said, "Wow, oh, look at all the water around the Earth." You know, he he grew up in a very dry, one of the driest areas there. Uh, and the world is full of water. It just changes already the perspective of this little kid. Uh, and then, you know, they see this, the, the stars in the sky and so forth. So know about what they're embedded in. Uh, so that's the one part. The other one is, of, is a, a fellowship program so that we actually funding now PhD students because the astronomy department in, in Namibia is still relatively small. They had, I think, uh, now this is going to be the first or second PhD student ever in Namibia to be getting a PhD there. And, and, and you immediately work, I think, in a project that's so international. And, and uh, you have, you know, contacts, not to the Netherlands only, but to the rest of the world as well. Um, and, and I think that's, yeah, you build science from the ground up with, with young students. And, um, and that will, I think, produce lasting relations in the long run. But you have to have this long perspective. Um, so science projects never just about the science. It's about the people. It's about relations and uh, about different cultures that you need to bring together. Yeah. So you're saying that this, this approach, you know, of, um, of, of kind of working almost in this case, at like a grassroots level, kind of getting in there, doing projects with kids, having an impact on the community, empowering students, giving them tools that they need, uh, involving them in, in projects. This kind of creates a more sustainable um, outlook for, for that particular project in that, in, 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 in that country, in, in, in this instance, in Namibia. We have to prove that still. I mean, we are we are beginning. The planetarium is there. We have the first PhD student funded. Um, we have the link set up. And whether it's sust more sustainable than other approaches, we will see in ten years. But I'm I'm convinced it is. But a I'm, as a scientist, you know, <laughs> I have to say this this too is an experiment, and we have to learn. 
um, how how to do this, and um, and things can always go wrong. But yes, I, I absolutely believe um, for the long term future of such a project, you know, you have to have a shared ownership, and it's not never just about science; it's also about the emotions, about the the feelings, and the, the feeling of you know being part of it. Right, right, and. And not just that is either, but also infrastructure. You know, you, you have to you have to build things, physical things there on the ground, and that infrastructure must add an, a new level of complexity and probably brings a lot of other people into the fray. I imagine you've had to work quite closely with policymakers. It's one of the first things we did actually. You know, involve also policymakers there, going to not only the ministries. Um, going to high-ranking politicians. I mean, we've been talking to the uh, Speaker of Parliament. We've been talking to the Vice President and recently to the President, and and they all aware of this. Of course, it's you know it's it's a smaller country, so it's easier to get access to to the the highest level. Um, still, um, it is it is important that you know this is supported by by politics there. And you also see that for them, this is very important. You know, we were talking to the president recently with the of the country, and you could see how he was sort of his eyes were sort of you know, you know, beaming, and 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 and, and how he was really fascinated by this. And and when you talk with you know ministers or others, you know, they could suddenly talk about something else. Um, and, um, and 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 again, it's it's a, it, it is a you know, a, um, you you feel the sense of pride. Um, that this is a you know a you know, a collaborative thing um, where where, where you know, Namibia is important, yeah. They are uh, and and that that's being 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 recognized, which often is it is not. You know, it's just being used, um, and uh, and and so we we try to change that that attitude a little bit. You also have to talk, of course, with with farmers uh, which are nearby, which have have very different <laughs> problems and <laughs> and issues. Um, and, and so Namibia itself is a very complex society, and that's to me also very fascinating to to get to know all these different aspects of of such a country, which is which has a very remarkable history, only having become independent in the 1990s. And you talk to people who have set up the country. You know who've written the constitution. You look at the you know this, this constitution in the in, in the parliament, and you see the signatories, and you and you realize I talked to this guy, I talked to this guy, and I talked to to <laughs> to that one, and um, and you feel a little bit you, you're part of the you know the history and the development of this country, which is still you know um, trying to find its way. Uh, and uh, and I think we'll play a major role in in the future as well, due to the you know, energy transition, and so forth. Right? You you in this country, and you see all this space and the sunshine and everything. You immediately think hydrogen, and <laughs> and no wonder this country now talks about hydrogen uh, e- e- economy. And I suspect that um, you know th- there'll be some other side effects from, from from these collaboration that you know some some completely overlooked country right in, in in terms of Netherlands doesn't even have an embassy in Namibia anymore yeah but it could become one of the major energy uh, uh, providers power providers in the future yeah they could provide you know possibly lots of 
of, of, of hydrogen in the future rather than Russian gas, you know, which is a big topic these days with the invasion in, in, uh, in Ukraine. And, and then you, you build already the relations. And, and so I think like in science, sometimes you have sort of unexpected side effects. Uh, you work on something and then the real you know, big breakthrough comes through a little, little side project you did, a little idea. Could be the same here. That you know, you you build relations, and at some point, you just connect the right people, the right ideas, and something big could 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 come out, which is not science, which which is economy, which is um, societal. Through work on the African Millimeter Telescope, Hanno has had conversations with politicians, children, farmers, and scientists of Namibia. And as the project progresses, so too does the relationship between the two nations a relationship that may see wider-reaching benefits for both countries into the future. Astronomy has been linking nations together for many years. Previously, we heard from Evina von Dissouk, who mentioned that she was the former president of the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, an organization with a storied history and now over 85 member countries. The IAU was actually founded in 1919, coming just out of the, the First World War and uh, with a, a few of the countries. Um, since then, it has grown from just a handful of countries to 86 countries uh, worldwide. Uh, and its mission from the very start has been basically to promote and safeguard astronomy in all of its uh, aspects. Um, and that very much means also bringing people together uh, worldwide, um, even in times of conflict. Um, of course, obviously, after the World War, there was uh, conflicts, but then it came the Second World War, there was the Cold uh, War. Uh, the IEU has always kept open the doors um, to the scientists in order to be able to uh, to continue to talk and, and work together even in those difficult uh, periods. So that's an important function in terms of diplomacy, so to say, in uh, improving international relations of bringing people uh, together. Uh, I mean, obviously, the science has, has has changed beyond expectation in that time. If you look, you know, the progress that has been made in the in the science uh, in 1919, we knew of only one galaxy, our, our Milky Way. We knew of only eight planets, uh, all of in our own solar system. And now, of course, we know that our our universe is teeming with uh, galaxies. That on average, every uh, star has at least one planet. So uh, science uh, has 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 blossomed enormously in this uh, in this past century and, and and very much driven also by international relations one of the aims of the IEU is to make sure that uh, when we meet at, uh, for example, our General Assembly, but also at our scientific meetings, uh, that especially uh, the scientists from the developing countries, um, especially also the junior scientists from developing countries can attend. So the IEU spends a significant fraction of its budget in enabling the participation of scientists worldwide in uh, our scientific meetings. And what about the work the IAU is doing through the Office of Astronomy for Development? I know that was a program that expanded during your time as president. So I think uh, first it's important to note that this is the Office of Astronomy for Development. It's not the development of astronomy. That's a very important distinction. We're using astronomy as a tool 
to make the, the world a better place, uh, in the words of the, the current uh, office director. Um, so I think what is, is, is very impressive to see is how the, the office has um, basically grown and, uh, and, and grown from uh, in terms of its uh, you know, worldwide reach by having all of these uh, regional offices uh, of astronomy for development uh, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in uh, now also in Europe. Of course, we are very proud to have the E-Road, European road here in uh, Leiden uh, in the Netherlands. Um, and now also a, uh, uh, one in uh, the United States, uh, just to show that if you want to do astronomy for development, it's not just developing worlds that need to developing countries that need to participate in that. No, it's also the developed countries that need to work together and and, and use their knowledge in order to 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 build sort of this uh, this program. Um, and so I'm, I'm very happy that that sort of has uh, has grown, has strengthened, has solidified and uh, now um, maybe ready to take sort of a next step in, in sort of some of its flagship uh, missions. Why do you think it is that uh, astronomy has sh- should be doing this type of work? I mean, you could you you could think. I think when people often think about astronomy, they they think that it, it it's quite it's quite simple. It's telescopes looking at the sky. Uh, it's it's you know making deductions and measurements of 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 things that are they're in the up in the heavens. Why do you, why is it that you think that it's important that astronomy also be doing this work that benefits people uh, and benefits society down on Earth? Well, I think uh, astronomy, um, first of all, has uh, you, you, you know use enormous skills. I mean, technical skills, uh, technology uh, management skills, uh, big data. How, how to how to work with big data sets? Those are all skills that sometimes you don't realize as a student, but that are so important elsewhere in society. I mean, take a small example of uh, a little piece of hardware that was used in an instrument to look at the atmospheres of exoplanets. Well, that is now used in uh, um, instruments, in satellites, in order to study the uh, particulates in our own atmosphere. I mean, of course, very important for air quality and uh, pollution um, that we can now trace with um, instrumentation that was originally developed for, for astronomy. And so this is often what people talk about when it comes to astronomy's contributions to the world. It's, it's either the technology or the scientific insights that it gives us in, into our universe. But but what about simply sort of connecting people to the night sky? Is, is, is there anything being done there? Well, I, I think the one thing that we have tried to stimulate, especially over the last few years, is um, what is called often astrotourism, but it's really using uh, the night sky uh, as an asset uh, in order for uh, livelihood. Um, because too many people these days are just looking down. They're not looking up at the sky. And of course, the night sky is so beautiful. And uh, more and more people are realizing that uh, that they can get inspiration, actually, from looking at uh, the night sky. And so we've been really, um, and this is actually a project that has been going through the Office of Astronomy for Development, but also with the, the Office of uh, Outreach, is just bringing small telescopes to 
you know, countries around the world is such a wonderful tool to bring a small community together, uh, also to attract maybe uh, visitors there, but also as education for young children, for um, um for girls especially, <laughs> lots of interest there also in bringing girls and women, uh, just having them look for a first time through a telescope, telling them how a telescope works. Uh, it's a wonderful way of providing inspiration uh, for uh, for various uh, various people. And, 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 and that is so important because if you bring inspiration, if you trigger curiosity in young children, uh, that's what in the end leads to to innovation. So, you know, triggering this this attention in young people, uh, I mean, I think that's one of the, the most important things that we can bring as astronomy to society. Avina's sentiments are not unique among her peers. Here again is George Miley, himself a former vice president of the IAU, talking about the importance of astronomy in education. Now, if you look at education, There have been a lot of studies that have shown that when you get to children and you educate them from a very young age, this has the maximum effect. And it's only natural because if you look at children under the age of 10, their value systems are developing. And there was a Nobel Prize winning economist, James Heckman, that's done a study that has showed that uh, if you uh, give children pre pre school edu- uh, uh, education, that has an effect right through their lives. In fact, they they've uh, less of a tendency to commit crime. They succeed more in life than the group of children that didn't receive preschool education, and so. I always go back to my childhood and I realized that when my father uh, read me The War of the Worlds, that had an enormous effect on me. And so I, I, I uh, thought it would be really, it's really important to expose very young children to the beauty and enormity of the universe. Uh, when their value systems are developing. And that led me to, I, I, I happened to be, a, uh, to get some uh, funding uh, from the Dutch Academy to do what I liked with. I was made an academy professor and that gave me funding uh, to that I didn't have to justify uh, in, in terms of scientific proposals. So I used part of it to start this program called Universe Awareness for, for young children, children of, of four to, to eight, uh, which one would expose to the, uh, uh, to the beauty and, and perspective of the universe. The perspective aspect is particularly important. If children realize what a, a, a small speck of the universe they're living in, then they would be less likely to become nationalists and uh, uh, would realize that they're citizens of the world and that they would 
hopefully uh, push to for internationalism when they got older. So uh, the name has morphed into Pale Blue Dot, uh, but it's the same program. And I had several people working with me who really uh, it wouldn't have got off the ground without without that, uh, and they 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 very very gifted people, uh, and although again it's not it's usually you have a one person that sort of sets something going, but without people who are uh, very uh, uh, gifted working with them, uh, nothing like that would get off the ground. Unawe was implemented in more than 60 countries. And I think you have to give the, you're not an expert teacher. Uh, you give the people of the country the freedom to adopt the program for uh, for the country where it's being implemented. Now, I uh, uh, the, the the two aspects that I think are uh, are essential are the beauty of the universe and the perspective from the universe. And so, uh, the the we had people like Cecilia Scorza. Uh, Venezuelan living in Germany, who developed a lot of materials of of toys, of a, a globe which uh, children could play with, uh, and uh, they would see pictures of the universe. But but particularly important that they would play games which were based on uh, on the universe, um, and to try and and teach them how big the universe was and that they were a part of it. And hopefully that when they grew up, they had to help protect the planet on which we live. Wow. And so you said 60 countries it was was rolled out. Do you have an idea of how many uh, children were involved in, in it uh, or have been involved in you know it? Several thousand. I mean... The other thing is, I, I think it's particularly important for underprivileged children to be exposed to this sort of program. Uh, several thousand, but I, I don't have the number uh, of the um, uh, immediately. Um, I uh, I do think that there there are good reasons to implement a program like this uh, uh, on a much wider scale to give them a, a perspective and to also show them the beauty of the universe. Um, it, it, it helps advance three of the sustainable development goals. Uh, one of the, of the UN sustainable development goals is to uh, encourage global citizenship. Uh, another is uh, to advance the cause of peace. And a third is to preserve our planet. And those are the three uh, 
SDGs that I think universe awareness, pale blue dot can help to uh, to uh, uh, stimulate. And so I do think that it's an essential that we give every child, we expose every child when their value systems are developing to the uh, perspective and the beauty of the universe. With every new discovery in astronomy, with every mysterious object unveiled, with every vast distance quantified, the fallacy of a universe that exists for humanity, for our whims and desires, dissolves away and gives way to something else, for awe, for reverence and humility, and for compassion in amongst the daunting realizations that our telescopes provide. It is a recurring theme among astronomers, and indeed the ones we have spoken to over the course of this podcast, that this is the inspiration that drives them to make discoveries and the motivation for them to share what they learn. That's the whole other part that uh, astronomy brings, actually, this, this perspective. And, and there's no better example than the, you know, the Voyager image of uh, the pale blue dot uh, and the realization that astronomy brings, that we live on this tiny little rock uh, around a quite ordinary star somewhere in the outskirts of a galaxy. There are 250 billion other uh, stars in that galaxy. There are, you know, billions of other galaxies. Uh, how unique are we we are just a tiny little you know dot there in the, in the universe and and we better take care of it everybody from from the you know the waiter at the restaurant to to the president of a country has some history with with with, with looking at the stars talking to their you know in their family or you know they themselves everybody you know it, it's so present certainly in namibia i mean it's it's so so beautiful and, and so, um, so 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 it, it is there, you know. It's in your face, literally. I think this is a global fascination. That that's one thing. You don't have to explain it. Yeah, everybody knows it. So everybody has a question about stars. Everybody has a, a has a little story about it. So you can immediately connect. And and, and astronomy is one of the oldest history. And in every in in every history of every country of every tribe of every nation. You know, it's something that has to do with, with stars. So that, that's a very connecting thing. This also drives people within astronomy. It's quite odd. We've got the science part, of course, but uh, you also see this, this energy from just educating others. Uh, that's something that really lies close to, it seems, most people's hearts here as well. Yeah, we view it as a critical part of our work and our place actually in the community. We are enormously privileged to be able to do what we do. Uh, my uh, research topic is very distant radio galaxies at the edge of the universe. So they're uh, about 12,000 million light years from the Earth. To be able to make images, make pictures of these things and realize that the light has been traveling for all this time before we see it and we see the galaxies as they were thousands and millions of years ago i think that's made me gave me an enormous privilege and so i do feel that we have to give something back to society for what they've put into it and i i think you know if you look at our planet we can go in one of two ways 
we can destroy ourselves. The other way we can try and mobilize the best parts of human nature uh, to really improve the world and go out, do things like uh, astronomy and uh, make sure that everybody has enough to eat and that everybody has enough education and that we uh, appreciate the cultural, the culture that our race, our, our uh, uh, species has evolved. And so we'll see what happens. I won't see it, but uh, you will go further in that direction. It's clear from our discussions that working towards a sustainable future is inherently rooted in current astronomical research. That the act of looking up and exploring the vast universe can have huge beneficial applications down here on this tiny planet. Astronomers see their work within astronomy for development and diplomacy as necessary, as a responsibility, and it is obvious that this drive has no signs of slowing down. Astronomical research and development can provide education, jobs and opportunities for societal change. It can foster discussion, improve relationships between countries that usually may not see eye to eye, but mostly it can evoke awe and emotion for our delicate position in this vast cosmos, hopefully encouraging empathy and kindness to each other and the planet. We would like to thank our four brilliant interviewees, Professor Heino Falker, Professor George Miley, Professor Avina von Dissouk, and Dr. David Prinsloo for taking the time out to join us and walk us through their vast experiences. This is a heliocentric productions podcast made for the Astro and Society Group at Leiden University with funding from the NVO Science Diplomacy Fund. If you enjoyed this one-off podcast episode, please share it with others who you think will also enjoy it and leave a review as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Cosmic Perspectives was written and produced by me, Callum Griffiths, and Aoife Taylor with executive production from Professor Pedro Russo. Sound design was done by Yessa Stuhl and graphic design by Aneta magraf Druk. We'd like to sincerely thank you for listening, and we hope that this podcast inspires you to learn more about astronomy and about how it can contribute to the wider world.